Well, thank you, Tim. That was far too kind. Uh, <laughs> um, so, um, if you're new to Grace, I'm Brian Croyle. I'm a member here at Grace. Uh, occasionally, uh, Dave will ask me to, to speak if he's, uh, he's got something else going on. Uh, not this past week, but the week before, he was out of town. Um, and um, he's, he, he, uh, he, he runs a tight ship around here. He always has his sermons done a full week in advance. And so since he was gone, not this past week, but the week before, he didn't have time to prepare for, for today. And so it puts some pressure on people like me to actually get things done on time. Um, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be speaking here today. And, and we're continuing the series, Promises, Promises, Our Commitments Beyond the Voting Booth. And last week, Dave spoke specifically about um, the, uh, the question of putting um, sorry, promising to submit to others. And, and uh, he looked at uh, the first part of Romans chapter 13. And the topic we're talking about today is choosing to put others first. It's related to what we talked to last week. Um, and actually, our scriptures from today are coming from right in the same... They're, essentially, they're bookending what we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 13. Today, we're looking at Romans 12 and then the latter part of chapter 13. But the concepts of submission and putting others first are really related um, in common ties of um, humility and um, really uh, selflessness. I'm going to move this down a little bit so it's not in the way. Um, and... You know, if we're if we're submitting to others and we're putting others first, we're not being selfish. Um, we're 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 taking a humble place, and that's a good place to be in in the kingdom of God. But if we talk about putting others first, we uh, and promising to put others first. If we think about the the kinds of promises and oaths that we make as people, um, for those of you who are married, remember your wedding vows. Uh, we think about if you've been here at Grace when we do a, a child dedication and the parents stand here with the child and, and, and promise to care for that child. Many occupations, uh, physicians uh, will take the Hippocratic Oath or other related oaths. Uh, even politicians, here we are in election season and they take an oath of office, right? And these promises, these oaths are to take care of others, to, to work for the good of others, to essentially put others first. That's a big part of what we should be as followers of Jesus Christ, what we should value as Christians. And, and um, I got to say, when I was preparing for this, this sermon, even when I first started putting together thoughts for this sermon, I, I just really felt like I, I didn't have anything insightful. Isn't that a great way to start a sermon? I have nothing insightful for you today. No, um, I, I didn't feel like I had anything really eloquent. What I really felt like today was I just wanted to let the Scripture speak for itself. Um, we're going to look at Romans 12 and Romans 13 and some other places too. And the scripture is going to provide our challenge this morning, if you will. I mean, uh, the, the scripture is going to be what challenges us and, and calls us to respond, each of us in our own way, as we feel, this, feel God talking to us and, and, and asking us to respond. And, and that, that challenge today is how do we selflessly and humbly put others first? And uh, allow me to say that... Um, I may be sitting here talking about this, but I have absolutely not arrived. Um, this is a sermon associated with something that I believe very strongly in and something that I disappoint myself in regularly. Um, in my own spiritual growth, my own life, um, my consistency in putting others first and loving people the way they should be loved is not where I want it to be. And so I need this every bit as much as any one of you might need it. Um, 
but I just, I just hope that we can look at Scripture together and, and, and learn from what it has to say to us this morning. You know, Mark Twain is kind of famous for saying that um, it's not the parts of the Bible that he doesn't understand that bother him, it's the parts that he does understand, right? Because the Bible can be very clear sometimes in its challenge. And we're going to look today at some clear challenges from Scripture, um, and particularly out of Romans. But before we get into Romans, I wanted to start with something else that Paul had written in, uh, in uh, the book of Philippians, to the Philippian church. And the reason I want to look at that is because it kind of sets a context. As we talk about being, um, putting others first, Paul points us to the life of Christ and says we need to be like Jesus. He's our model. He's the one who has demonstrated for us what that looks like, what that means. And so I wanted to read a, a very famous portion of Scripture. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Philippians 2, 1 through 11. A lot of the focus is often on verses 6 through 11, and it's, it's truly one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. But I'm, I'm actually going to focus just on verses 1 through 5 this morning, which kind of put context to those latter Scriptures. And it says this, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And he goes on after that to say how Jesus, though he was with God in heaven, chose to become a man, chose to come to earth and to suffer and die on a cross for us so that our sins could be forgiven. And that Jesus exalted him and raised him up because of that. But but this gives us a context. Jesus gave himself for uh, for us. He put his needs ahead of our own when he came to the earth. And Paul's saying, we need to be willing to put others' needs ahead of our own. We need to be willing to put others first. So our big idea for this morning is this. Jesus gave himself for us. He calls us to give ourselves for each other and for the world. He gave himself for us, and he calls us to give, our, give ourselves for each other here within the church, but also for the people in the world outside these walls that we come into contact with every day. He calls us to give ourselves for them. And we can't be true representatives of Christ while we live self-absorbed lives. We must choose to put the needs of others ahead of our own. And that's a decision that has to be made daily. Because we're going to be confronted every day with the opportunity to choose to do our own thing, to go to make our decisions based on our own priorities rather than looking to the needs of others. We need to choose daily to make that decision. Let's pray together. God, I pray that um, as we look to your scripture, that it would do the speaking this morning. Uh, God, that we would hear from your word and by your spirit, and that each of us would know what your word is to us, what our response is, that, what our response needs to be to really um, grapple with what you're saying to us. God, I pray that you just get me out of the way and let your truth speak, let your voice speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look through Romans 12 and 13, 
uh, Paul helps us to understand how we can honor God by putting others first. And he, he really gives us four different ways, four different things that he says in this passage that, that show us what putting others first looks like. And the first of that is this. As part of the body of Christ, we all belong to each other. We're not just in this for ourselves. We're not just in this on our own and for our own benefit. We belong to each other. And if we belong to each other, then we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. We need to be honest on our self-assessment. We need to, to, be, to be humble. We need to not be filled with pride. And, and so in, in verse 3 of chapter 12, Paul says this, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Later in chapter 12, Paul actually says, don't think you know it all. Right? Don't think that you know it all. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. We need to be conscious of our strengths and also conscious of our weaknesses. They're real. They're a part of who we are. And that's okay. But it doesn't seem like that's the way much of what we see in our culture today, or at least within the media in our culture, right? As particularly as here we are in an election period, um, but not just in the time of election, in sports, in reality TV, Everyone is, is, it's all one-upmanship. It's how am I better than the next person? How am I going to glorify myself? How do I come out ahead? How do I come out on top? And, and putting self first prevails. And, and at least it seems like much in our culture glorifies that or celebrates that. Until such a time as we actually meet someone face-to-face who has that kind of arrogant pride, then we don't, then we don't maybe celebrate or glorify it so much, right? It's a little bit, it's a little bit more uh, real when it's, when it's in front of you. But there have been many studies that show that, that true emotional health comes from a self-awareness of our gifts, our talents, and our weaknesses, being honest and open with those things, and partnering with other people who have the strengths that we don't. Um... And also, the talents that we do have, right, they are a gift from God. Anything that we've achieved through our talents are really achievements that have occurred because God has given us the gifts that we have. And so we shouldn't be um, doing what we do and, and, and striving in order to say, look at me, but rather we should be letting our talents and our accomplishments point to him, saying, look at him, look at what he has done for me. Well, Paul continues, again, we talked about how he says we belong to each other. He's really focused on this concept of community, not individualism. And starting in verse 4 of chapter 12, he says, Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. These gifts, if you look at these, serving, teaching, encouraging, leading, these are all outward gifts. These are gifts that are meant for the benefit of the community, for each other. They're not meant for ourselves. They're not meant to lift ourselves up, but they're meant for the benefit of the whole group, the whole community, and for those around us. And 
as many wonderful things as we have in this country, in America, there is an individualistic spirit that can, can lead us the wrong direction. That individualistic spirit that says, I did it my way, right? I can do it on my own. I don't need other people. And, and Paul would say, speaking of the body of Christ, he'd say, that's just as foolish as if the I said, I don't need the rest of the body. I'm good on my own. And he uses this metaphor of the body of Christ in, in a number of cases. One p- case he uses is in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about one body and many parts. And he says, the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. I, could, you know, my, I need my head for work, but if I can't use my feet to get myself to work, it won't do any good, right? We, the different parts of the body work together. And Paul says that's like the body of Christ. We all have different gifts and different talents. And maybe you're struggling with this metaphor and you're thinking, that sounds nice, but you know, all of my, my body parts are intact. You know, I have eyes, ears, feet, head, everything. So that may be true physically, but even when it comes to our, our gifts, our talents, our needs, emotionally, socially, we are not built. We are not made to be individualistic. We are not built to do it on our own. We're built to do it together. And we can't be the full body of Christ on our own. I can't be all that Christ is and all that Christ wants his church to be by myself. Why is that? Because I have weaknesses. I have weaknesses where you have strengths. I don't have your talents. I don't have your gifts. I don't have your passions. I don't know the people that you know. I don't have the influence over the the world that you have an influence over. And so how can I be the body of Christ by myself? I can't. I'm just a part, and you're part with me. We're part all together. You know, if, if you look at the, the different ministries that we have here at Grace, the various different things that happen here, whether it be here on Sunday morning, whether it be at Catalina Village, whether it be in Mexico, whether it be Grief Share and Divorce Care or Alpha or VBS, so many different ministries you know, there's not any one single person that his or her has his or her hands in all of those things. Not even Dave is, is engaged in each of those things and certainly not driving each of those things. And yet all of those things happen here at Grace. Why is that? Because different people with different gifts and different passions have stepped up and led and, and took responsibility and had a passion for it and made it happen and made it successful. That's the body of Christ being the body of Christ. That's us being what God has called us to be. Well, the second thing that Paul shows us in, um, in these sections of, of Romans is this, that love is action. Love is not what we feel, but love is what we say and what we do. Well, why is that? Well, if, if I think love is a feeling, right, I, I can't express my love to someone through a feeling. My feeling for someone doesn't do anything for them. It's an internal thing. Feelings exist internally. Feelings, love doesn't affect another person until it's something that can be seen visibly, heard audibly, or felt physically. Until we say or do something for someone else. Love is a demonstration. Love is an action. And so, Paul says in Romans 12, starting in verse 9, he says this, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. 
When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Right? So the, the scripture says to delight in honoring each other. Don't be lazy. Work hard. Keep praying. Help those who are in need. Be eager to practice hospitality. Those are actions. Those are doings. That's love doing something. And it reminds us that our goal in loving is not to, to seek to get love. Our goal is to seek to give love. That's what Christ calls us to, to seek for ways to give love to each other. Um, many of you are probably familiar with the, the book that was written a number of years ago by Gary Chapman called Five Love Languages. Are you familiar with that book? Um, the, the, the basic premise of the book is that as human beings, we naturally um, understand and feel, receive love from others through one of five main ways. And those are um, words of affirmation, uh, acts of service, quality time, physical touch, and receiving gifts. So uh, you might have several of those that, that, you, that help you more to understand that you're loved. There might be one that's very primary, but those are, are ways that we experience and receive love. Well, if you think about all of those, all of those ways that we receive and understand love are, are, are actions, right? Words of affirmation are the say part, someone speaking things to you to encourage you. Acts of service and physical touch and receiving gifts and uh, time, quality time. <laughs> those four are all about doing, doing something for the other person. So a question I have for you, for those of you who are familiar with the five love languages, how many of you have, have done one of the kind of the surveys and have a, an idea of what your primary love languages are? Can I see you, ra- you raise your hands? There's, there's a number of you here, okay. Um, let me ask you this. Um, how many of you that are, have done that and are married know what your spouse's primary love language is? Well, that's good. That's good. I like to see that. <laughs> um, because the real benefit of, of doing that test is not just saying, okay, this is what you need to do for me so that I know that I'm loved. It's about knowing how you can do things for your spouse, for your family, for your friends that will help them to know that you care about them. And that's what God calls us to do, to not seek love so much as we seek to give love. You know, others see love most when we do something that costs us. If we do something that is sacrificial, if it's something that costs us, um, then people know that we love them. Have you ever gotten a hand-me-down gift? I'll use an example here. Have you ever gotten a hand-me-down gift? There are actually two different types of hand-me-down gifts. One is the hand-me-down gift that the other person just doesn't need anymore, right? They, they, it's something that it's not significant to them. They don't need it, but maybe you would need it, and so they give it to you. It's not bad. It could be a very good gift. That's one type of hand-me-down gift. The other type is something that someone has had and cherished for years, something that was very meaningful to them, and yet they chose to give it to you because they knew it would be meaningful to you. Now, it might be exactly the same gift, but in those two scenarios, would you have a different um, viewpoint about the gift or maybe more so the giver? You would feel loved more by the person who gave out of sacrifice, who gave even though they they cherished what they gave. You know, sometimes doing, expressing love and putting others first through sacrificial things is pretty simple. 
It's, it's as simple as you want to do A, whatever A is, and someone else wants to do B, right? And so long as B is not inherently wrong or evil, putting the other person first is being willing to set aside A and willingly, not grudgingly, willingly participating in B as a sacrificial gift to the other person. Now, I didn't, I didn't put out an A or a B because I figure as I'm talking, maybe some of you out there have in your heads a recent discussion with a friend or a family member about an A and a B and a disagreement. So, so maybe you've got your own context right now what that looks like. Putting others first means saying, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and choose to lay my desires aside and I'm going to honor you through doing what you would like to do. That's when it's simple. Sometimes it can be very difficult. There's a great book um, written by a man named Bob Goff. Um, he's been a speaker at the Willow Creek Summit. He wrote a book called Love Does. And um, might sound like he didn't finish the title. Love Does What? <laughs> uh, he, wrote, he named it that very, very intentionally. His, his point is that love does. Love is active. Love is not passive. And he gives many examples in the book of what love does to show itself, to demonstrate itself. And at the beginning of the book, he, gives, uh, he tells a story about his own life um, and how he had met a young man, younger than he was. He was a junior in high school, and he met this guy who was probably in his early 20s named Randy, who worked for Young Life, which is a Christian organization that works with youth. And Randy had befriended him, but um, Bob had decided in his junior year that high school really wasn't for him, and he thought maybe a better thing would be that he go and uh, move to Yosemite. He'd find a job during the, the mornings working in one of the shops, and then he'd spend the afternoon hiking rocks. And so he, um, early on a Sunday morning, he stopped by Randy's house. And he knocked on the door, and Randy came to the door, and he said, hey, I just want you to know I really appreciate you being a friend to me, but you know, I'm, I'm actually leaving. I'm going to go to Yosemite now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop high school. I don't need any more of that stuff. And I'm going to go and, and live and work in Yosemite. And Bob writes it. Randy looked at him for a second, and then he did this amazing thing. He ran back into the house, grabbed a backpack, came back to the front door and said, Bob, I'm with you. And he was with him. He literally hopped in the car with Bob, and they drove off to Yosemite together. And for two days, Bob tried to find a job in Yosemite as a 16-year-old without a high school degree. Guess how effective that was. Um, two days, they looked for a job. Two days, they slept in a tent. The whole time, Randy said, Bob, I'm with you. No matter what happens, I'm with you. So finally, at the end of this, Bob says, you know, Randy, maybe, um, maybe I'll go ahead and, and, and go back home and, and finish high school. And Randy said, I'm with you. And so they drove back home. And Bob realized that Randy really truly had been with him that whole time. He, he'd put actions behind his words. But, but Bob didn't realize how much Randy had been with him until he took Randy back home. And they opened the front door to the house, and Bob walked in behind Randy and saw the opened wedding gifts lying on the floor. A day or two earlier, Randy had been married, had gotten married, his wedding. And rather than spending the first couple of days of his marriage with his wife, he saw a kid in need, and he said, Bob, I'm with you. That cost Randy something, didn't it? 
In case you're wondering, his wife welcomed him home with open arms. Okay, she forgave me. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes sacrificial love costs us something. But I tell you what, that experience is one of the primary things that led Bob Goff to Christ, led him to Jesus, led him to become an attorney, led him to become a speaker, led him to write a book called Love Does that's a bestseller that tells people how to show love to others through action. Yeah, it's, a, it's a moving story um, about a man who gave of himself for someone he cared about. But you know, this is where things can get challenging because God doesn't just call us to give for people that we have a kinship with. The third thing Paul tells us is that we're called to love and forgive those who even mistreat us because that's what Jesus did. Chapter 12, verse 14 starts this way. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. We're called to bless and not curse those who hurt us. Jesus did that. We know that. Jesus on the cross after having been tortured and having been crucified, in the process of being killed for doing absolutely nothing wrong, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We look like Jesus when we choose to forgive as well. And so being a person of peace means giving up the right or our perceived right to retaliate. It's natural to want to retaliate when someone has hurt us, isn't it? It, it's, it's a blow to our pride, and there's a reason why we want to retaliate, I think, because um, somehow we feel like the other person, or we feel like we lose if we let the other person get away with it. And we feel like we win if we get them back. Doesn't sound very good, but, we, but subconsciously we think that way, I think, in many cases. Scripturally, we can see that's absolutely backwards. It's absolutely backwards. There are two ways to win. The first way to win is to, to, to return cursing with blessing, to be kind and actually potentially see reconciliation coming back together. The second way to win is that reconciliation never happens and that person still curses you, but you still choose to bless and you honor God and you let God be the one to convict and to rebuke that individual. We win in that situation because we have honored God. There is a way to lose. The way to lose is to... Is to is to stay bitter, to choose not to forgive, to choose to retaliate, and in the process, breaking relationship with God. You know, we don't, I don't think we naturally think of winning by being uh, submissive, like we talked about last week, right? But what did Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat as well. If someone forces you to walk a mile, walk another mile. In the kingdom of God, believe it or not, that's winning. Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive someone? Is seven times enough? Jesus said, no, Peter, it's not. 
not seven times, seven times 70 times. And I really don't believe that Jesus meant that you could carry on a clipboard and you could count up to 490. And when 491 came, you could cut the person off. I think Jesus meant always forgive. Always forgive. I know that's hard, right? There's this justice streak in us that's actually a thing from God, right? That rises up in us and says, wrongdoing should not, should not be allowed. And there is absolutely place for us as the body of Christ to stand against injustice. But that's different from bitterness. That's different from retaliation. We still need to love and forgive as we stand for justice. And particularly when things come our way, we need to forgive. That is hard when someone has hurt us. I have struggled with this in my own life. Specific instances, specific relationships, that forgiveness has been very hard. And I don't see reason why the person deserves forgiveness. Well, forgiveness isn't about deserving. Forgiveness is about choosing to honor God. And when we feel like it's unjust, we we need to be reminded that the only explanation for this can be that God loves everyone. God doesn't just love us and the people who are nice to us. God loves even the wrongdoers. And he wants to see everyone come back to him, to be reconciled to him. And he even wants us to be part of that reconciliation. So whether it's people who are nice to us or people who aren't, we're to be reconcilers. We're to be the ones who put others first. And so if we are part of that reconciliation that God wants... The last thing Paul has to say to us is this. Time is precious. Time is precious and someone's eternal destiny may be at stake. Time is running short. Our lives are short. We all know people who were gone before we were ready. We need to take the time and use the time wisely. In uh, chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says this. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Verse 10, love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. There are people that we know that we may have very few opportunities to be able to, to reach into their lives, to do something meaningful for them before they're gone or before we never see them again and we've missed an opportunity. But our selfless acts of love can make a difference in bringing someone to Christ and bringing someone to eternity with God. If we don't sit idly, but we move forward and step out. I asked Dave to help me to uh, pull up some information. Um, uh, over the last five years since Dave has been here, conservatively, we've seen at least 52 people come to Christ here at Grace. That's through the various ministries that have happened here. That's in the last five years, 52 people who have come to know Christ because of the ministries of this church. And that's, again, that's just, that's just coming to Christ. That's not, you know, anything that happens in all of us to grow in our faith, to rededicate our lives to Christ. Amazing things have happened here. Well, why has that happened? What's happened because someone gave of their time and energy to volunteer and be a white shirt at VBS. 
and spend time with kids. It happens because people decided to invite a friend to the Alpha course or maybe to volunteer to be a helper in Alpha. It happens here on Sunday mornings where people come in and they're greeted at the door and we welcome them in and make them feel welcome and make them feel important because they are. And then they have an opportunity to hear the gospel in a way that they've never heard it before and they respond. Because of these various different gifts in our sacrifices and putting others first, giving of our time and energy and passions, we've made a difference in at least 52 people's lives eternally just in the last five years. That's, that's awesome. But I'll also say those things are periodic, right? Sunday is only one day a week. Alpha is two or three times a year. VBS once a year. And all of those things have happened here in these walls. What about the other six days a week? 365 days a year. What about outside of here where we live our lives? How can we make a difference in those people's lives and those people that we come into contact with? Well, Paul tells us that one of the ways we can do that is through living upright lives, by having integrity and not hypocrisy. If we live lives that are consistent with our faith, we show the world that our faith is real. And that's essential because people need to know that, that we're not hypocrites. They need to know that we're genuine and real. And if we couple that with kindness, with putting them first, we are going to have opportunities. If you think that you, your friends don't really want to know about Jesus, live lives of integrity and show kindness to them. And guess what? They're going to want to know more about what makes you the way you are. It's just naturally going to happen. Jesus said, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Every day is our opportunity to let our good deeds shine. Paul says it this way in Romans 13, starting verse 12, the night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity or immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus. Living lives of integrity and consistency is necessary. It's essential for people who don't know Christians to take, who don't know Christ to take us seriously. But if we do live that way, and we show kindness, and we show people that we care, and we show that we care about what they care about, and we live with integrity, we are going to create opportunities to share Christ with people. They're going to want to know what makes us different. We're going to create opportunities to draw people one step closer to Jesus, as we talk about so often here at Grace. Paul summarizes all of this really well in, in one very simple verse in 1 Corinthians 10. He says simply this, I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. 2,000 years later, our call is no different. Jesus asks us to put others first so that we can help them take one step closer to Jesus. And so if we're going to help people take one step closer to Jesus, then we need to decide what our next step is going to be. And every week we talk about next steps. How do we respond? And so 
Right now, I'm going to give you each an opportunity to think about these questions and how God might be speaking to each of you. In what relationships might God be calling you to start putting the other person first? How can you lay aside your own desires in order to help someone that God has placed in your life? And if you're married, how can you choose to put your spouse first this next week? I just want to give you a few moments to think about those things, and then we'll close together in prayer.